Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Seneca to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Philippians chapter 4. We were going um, through this book, and that's, if you're visiting with us, we're, we kind of walk through books of the Bible. That's our default mode, verse by verse. And so we've been flying through Philippians, and we get to chapter 4, and we've come kind of to a screeching halt. We just looked at a few verses last week, and this week it most likely we'll only look at a few uh, as well. But it's amazing how relevant the, the Bible is for our lives today. I mean, you think about the Bible, it's God's inerrant, infallible word, and it's, that's we, what we've been learning on Wednesday night. If you haven't been here, we're learning about the Bible and why we have the 66 books of the Bible that we have and how that came to be. And then we talked about why we believe the Bible is God's word and we can trust it. And you never know when you're going to have conversations about that information, are you, Bo and Melanie? I was eavesdropping on their small group, and that came up in their small group uh, about why we have the Bible and how it came to be and why we can trust it. But I want to encourage you, if you're available on Wednesdays at 7, we have Bible studies for children, for students, for adults as well. But we were thinking, of, talking last week about conflict in these two ladies, Yodia and Seneki, and they had conflict in the church. And, and it... it I, Several of you mentioned how relevant that text was for your life, and of course it is because we, we have conflict all the time, don't we? The Bible is so helpful for our lives. It is uh, relevant for us today. If we, we're walking through the book of Philippians, and we get to chapter 1, verse 27, is a, a key point in the, the book, and it tells us that we're to live lives worthy of the gospel in every sense that point, Reese, we have been learning how to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And we we're given all these commands that lead us to do just that. And we, we even have some good examples like Christ in chapter 2. In the end of chapter 2, we have Epaphroditus and Timothy. And in chapter 3, Paul himself. So we have these great examples of people who are living lives that are worthy of the gospel. One of the ways that we know that We live worthily, we live lives worthy of the gospel is by having a unified mind, the same mind. And, and Paul tells us several times to agree in the Lord, to have the same mind, to be unified in, in, in how we think. In chapter 2, verse 2, we were told that, and again last week in chapter 4, verse 2, these two sisters are having some difficulty getting along. 
And it's not a, a major doctrinal, doctrinal issue, some big thing that Paul needs to address. If so, he would have done that. But they're having some small hiccup in their relationship. And the Bible tells us how to deal with conflict. And as we said last week, to agree in the Lord doesn't mean we think the same things about everything. We can have different opinions about um, how to do life, different opinions about things going on in the church, but they're to have the same mind in the Lord. And in fact, I was thinking about the New Testament scriptures that teach us about having different opinions in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is addressing the Corinthian believers in regard to food sacrifice to idols. And he says, what are idols? They're nothing. If you want to eat the food, eat the food. If you don't want to eat the food, if, you, if it goes against conscience, then don't eat the food. So what does that tell us? Whether well, you can have different opinion about things, right? And where does Paul side? You know, he sides with the theologically strong person because idols are nothing. But don't cause your weak brother to stumble, right? But we can have different opinions about those things. In Romans chapter 14, we've got some texts we're going to read together. We see again, Paul is addressing the believers in Rome. And as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. See, don't quarrel over opinions. You can have different opinions about things. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, this is not talking about food sacrificed to idols, although you would think that since I just mentioned 1 Corinthians 8. Most likely this is dealing with just food laws. Keep in mind, the Jews who had repented and began to follow the Messiah, Jesus, what have they been doing their whole lives? Keeping the food laws, right? And so Paul is, is addressing that issue here. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let the not, not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. We can have different opinions. Can you eat everything now? Is it, is it all kosher, or do we still need to, to avoid pork, right? One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. There's Sabbatarians. Should we still keep the Sabbath day like we did back in the Old Covenant? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So what does this all teach us? We can have difference of opinion about a lot of things in life. We can disagree about a lot of things. But what we do have to agree upon is the gospel. We need to have the same mind. Regard the gospel and following Christ and giving him glory. So our mind needs to overlook disagreements that we can overlook and have a gospel perspective. We need to follow Christ. That's what the believers, that's what we're trying to do. And so Paul encourages Awkward conversations. We talked about it last week. You know, there's times where you take inventory in your relationship. We have to do it a lot in marriage. We have to do it a lot in our home. Maybe we have to do it with our coworkers, right? People that you share a cubicle with or you're involved with day in and day out. Sometimes we have to take inventory, make sure everything's okay. Are we okay? Michael and I, we do that from time to time. We work in the office together. And Morgan, we'll do that. I'll say, hey, everything okay? You doing all right? Everything okay? Spirit's good? You got anything we need to talk about? Any any. You know, any foxes in the vineyard, so to speak? Something that we need to discuss? You happy with me? I'm happy with you? Let's talk about that. Yeah, we need to do that sometimes. Those Matthew 5, 24 
conversations, right? When you realize you're at the altar going to offer your gift to the Lord and realize, oh, maybe your, your brother or sister has something against you. So you need to go and make those things right. So Paul encourages us to have those kind of conversations so we can overcome our conflict. But some things, you know, are worth disagreeing about. We have to keep that in mind as well. There are some, some issues, some, some things in life, some doctrinal issues. If you say, well, works uh, is, is how we attain salvation. We just got to be good folks. We got to be good people. I just got to do better and God's going to accept me. Well, uh, we need to disagree about that because that's not the gospel. That's not biblical thinking. That's false teaching and we can disagree about those things. A sister may say, I don't want to leave my husband for somebody that I really love. Well, I have to disagree with that person as well. I don't have the same mind as you about that issue. I can't agree with you on that, and that's going to cause problems with our fellowship. But Seneca and Yodi are not having those type of disagreements. And so we, we talked about that in verse 2 and 3 last week. And, and here you see these Exhortation, these commands, they're piled on top of one another, aren't they? I mean, it says, he tells Yodi and, and Seneca in chapter 4, verse 2, to, to agree in the Lord, and then he, he asks the church to help them, right? And then verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Morgan read this text for us. Again, I say rejoice. And he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, right? And in chapter 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true and honorable and, and just and pure and lovely and commendable, if there's anything excellent, if anything is worthy of praise, think about such things. Then verse 9, whatever you've learned and received or heard in me or seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so he, he just piles those on. He does that, he does that several times in, in his writings, Paul does. Romans chapter 12, he does that. Just command after command. Do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, do this. And he does it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Again, just command after command. Boom, boom, boom. Do these things, don't do these things. Just really straightforward. Well, he does it here. But sometimes we have to ask, are these commands connected? You know, the book of James, there's a lot of, a lot of those commands there. Do this, don't do that. And sometimes they're, they're, it's like the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's not connected. But I think here in our text this morning, I think it is connected. And I'll, I'll show you um, in verse 4 and 5. The first thing we're going to learn, two points this morning, I think, is all we're going to get to all the time we're going to have. Uh, the first thing we're going to learn is rejoice all the time because of the gospel's impact in our lives. Rejoice all the time because of the gospel's impact in our lives. Or you could put it another way. Rejoice because you are his. You are Christ. You are the Lord's. And rejoice is a theme in this letter, isn't it? We see it time and time again. Along with the, the, the theme of unity in this, in this letter. In this verb, it's in the present tense, active voice, imperative mood, and, and tense and voice and mood. You don't, you don't probably um, know what that means, and it doesn't matter. But what it does mean is that Paul is, is commanding the Philippian believers to go on and be glad in the Lord. Continue. Go on. Be, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice. And yet, rejoice and rejoice. And yet, keep on rejoicing. That's what he's saying. That's what this means here. And, and if he says it twice, if you don't get it the first time, he says, again, rejoice the Lord always. Again, I'm going to say rejoice. And he said it time and time and time and time again already. But he's just saying it over and over again. Does he really think we can rejoice all the time? Can we really have joy all the time? 
I think. It's not just a possibility. And some of you may be thinking that. We know we're, we're Christ. We have the Holy Spirit with us. And, you know, it's possible that we could be joyful in difficult times. No, it's, it's actually expected in the life of a believer. This is a, a, an imperative. It's a command. Like if you tell, uh, Lonnie, you tell your, your girls, clean, clean the room. Clean your room. It's not a question. It's, no, clean your room. I didn't ask you. I'm telling. You ever say that as a parent? Yeah, I'm not. A, this, this is not a question. Don't misunderstand me. Do it. Right? It's a command. And that's what's going on here. It's, it's an imperative. Be joyful. Rejoice. But what about when we get the, the cancer diagnosis? What about when my family falls apart? What about when I get the news that my job position is being eliminated? What about when I have conflict with folks? Are we expected to be joyful? And the answer is a, a yes, capital Y, capital E, capital S, yes. Even during trying times. And you say, well, how is that possible? We've talked about this a little bit already. Well, look at verse 3. When Paul asked the church to help Yodi and Seneki, right? I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So it's tied. This is how this verse 4 is tied to verse 3. How are we to be rejo rejoicing? How are we to be joyful even amidst difficulty is because our names are written in the book of life. And we see these two things, these, this having our names written in the book of life and rejoicing tied together elsewhere. In Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus just sent out the 72, and the 72 come back, and they're really, really excited, Jerry, because they're like, man, we've seen things we've never seen before. Like the demons, we were able to cast out demons, and, and, and they obey us. And, and, and look what Jesus says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, because they're excited, because they were used by the Lord to set the captive free, those who are captive to demon, demon possession. But he says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Yeah, same thing. Your name's written in heaven. Your name's written in the book of life. We see this, this phrase um, again in Revelation 20, verse 15. And this is, it's, this is described negatively. But it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So it's saying the same thing, it's just in a negative way, right? It, if your name is not found in the book of life, then you're thrown into the lake of fire. You're in hell, right? As the opposite of heaven. And so what does it mean? It means that we rejoice because we belong to God. We can rejoice because we know the Father. We rejoice because we have been born again. We rejoice because we're regenerate. We rejoice because we are Christians. We rejoice because we've been forgiven. We rejoice because we're accepted even though we're still sinful. We rejoice because we are His. See, if our rejoicing is tied to circumstances, then what happens when our circumstances go south? Because they always do. In fact, some of you right now, you're having a great, you had a great week, you've had a great couple weeks, but guess what? Speed bump's coming, right? That's just life, right? Things aren't going to go well. A lot of the times. And for some, maybe life goes well for you most of the time. But 
typically, yeah, life doesn't go well all the time. We're going to be disappointed. We're going to have conflict. We're going to lose our job. We're going to get sick. We're going to lose a loved one. We're going to have somebody say something nasty about us. We're going to have, you know, we're going to have tragedy. We're going to have hurt. We're going to have disappointment. And if our joy, what we think is joy, is tied to our circumstances, when our circumstances change, then our joy is going to be fleeting. Our joy disappears. In fact, all the, all the reasons for rejoicing in the scriptures are, are spiritual. They're never physical. They're never tied to the here and now. They're always tied to spiritual things. For instance, Luke chapter 10, verse 20, we, we already read, it's salvation. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Yeah, we rejoice because we're saved, right? 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. If you're taking notes, you can take um, you can write those things down. We're having some trouble with our computer. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. That's 1 Peter 1, 8 9. Yeah, we have this, we have this hope, don't we? This future anticipation of what is to come. Psalm 1611. Beautiful passage of scripture here, beautiful verse. You, have, you make known to me the path of life. In your, speaking of God, right? In your presence, there's fullness of what? Joy, yeah, rejoice, right? Joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there's fellowship with the Lord. The result of the fellowship with the Lord is there's joy, right? It's spiritual, see? So we have salvation, that's a spiritual thing, right? Hope of what's to come, that's spiritual. Fellowship with the Lord, that's spiritual. Psalm 19, verse 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. There it is again, giving us joy. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So that again, the spiritual element, why do we rejoice? Because we have the word of God, right? It's a spiritual thing. It's not, we don't rejoice because of physical things, temporal, physical things, situations of life. It just doesn't happen. Where's Paul, by the way? When he's writing this letter, not right now. He's in glory right now, right? But when he wrote this letter, where is he? Yeah, he's in prison, right? Yeah, his circumstances stink, terrible. In, in most people's eyes, not having a good day, but yet he's, he, he's, he's saying, I have joy, and he's saying rejoice, right? Yeah, over and over and over again. Rejoice because the gospel's impacting our lives. Rejoice because you are his, right? We rejoice because of the spiritual benefits, right, of being united with Christ. Let's ask this question. What happens, church, if we live lives where we are continually rejoicing? I mean, he's commanding us to do that. Is, is it attainable? Should we expect that of ourselves? That's the goal, right? Yeah, that's the goal is to be like him. What, what's going to happen if we do that, if we're constantly rejoicing? Think of all the sins that are going to overcome, that we're going to overcome, right? If we rejoice always. This practice, what's it going to do? It's going to kill the sin of envy and pride and gossiping and stinginess, right? 
arrogance, discontentment, and complaining. Right? If you're rejoicing, you're not going to be doing all these other things, these sins that grow out of a heart that's not finding joy in Christ. You know, what, if, what, if we, what if we rejoice in the Lord? What if that becomes a habit of our lives if we're rejoicing in the Lord? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that our differences are going to be eradicated, right? We're still, we're still who we are. We have differences of opinion about things, just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. We can have differences of opinion, but... Rejoicing, that overflow of joy result will result in a more Christ-like life, a, a gentle life. A rejoicing spirit is a gentle spirit, and that's the second point. Be gentle because Jesus' return is imminent. We're to be joyful because of what God has done for us in Christ. We're joyful because we're saved, and we're gentle because Christ is going to return. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now this word reasonableness is kind of has the idea of being patient with others, giving way to, to their rights and, and others' wishes, um, uh, taking the back seat, so to speak. You know, you, you have kids that call shotgun all the time. Do you have a child that always calls shotgun? Yeah, when you always call shotgun, that's not being gentle. Okay, that's not the picture. That's not being reasonable. All right? So you have the, the overbearing rascal that always calls shotgun. That's not, uh, that's not being gentle, right? This is how it's translated in other tra good translations. These are all good translations. And it's really hard to translate the word, to be honest with you. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. That's the Holman Christian Center Bible. Of course, the ESV, let your reasonableness be known for everyone, right? New American Standard, let your gentle spirit be known to all. The Lord is near. The NIV is let your gentleness be evident to all. So this, this same word in the original language, right, is found in several texts. We want to look at that real quick, 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. In, in 1 Timothy 3, we see the qualifications of an elder. You know, a pastor needs to have this type of life. And one of the things you can't be is a drunkard or violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And what you'll see, most of the time when you see this word in the New Testament, it's always contrasted with being quarrelsome. And it's really hard to kind of, like you said, there's different ways of translating this, different People have different opinions about that. But every time you see it, it's, 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 it seems like it's contrast with, with quarrelsome. So it's the opposite of that. So how would you say that? Being easy to get along with. They say gentle, right? Reasonableness, yeah, being a peaceful person, yeah, all those things. Um, James 3.17 but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That word gentle, it's the same word. You know, Titus 3, Paul, he's telling Titus to teach those believers in Crete. He says, remind them to be submissive to 
rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid see, quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's always together with quarreling. Hunter, don't be quarrelsome. Whatever that is, that's, that's what it means to be gentle. However you want to word that. That maybe in your small groups you can spend some more time with that. But it's always contrasting quarreling. And we need this gentleness when we seek to, to be reconciled with other people, like we said last week. We need a gracious and forbearing spirit. We need a, a willingness to give up our preferences and show grace to others. Because Christ was that way. And he's this word gentle, reasonable, he's, he's called that in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says this, this is, he's saying this about himself. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, not quarrelsome, but gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So he's, he's the one we try to emulate, right? Christ, he's our ultimate example. And he is gentle, and we need to be gentle. And sometimes what happens, Sammy, is we'll, we'll hear this a lot. We'll say, well, you know, I just got a type A personality. You know, I just kind of tell it like it is. That's just kind of how I am. And what are we doing when we say those things? We're justifying our, our sin and our stupidity, usually, right? We're justifying our sin. Well, I'm just got a strong personality. You know, people like me, I've, I've got a strong personality. Yeah, I'm more prone to be quarrelsome. It's easier for me to be quarrelsome because of my personality. But there's no excuse for it. When I'm not gentle and I'm quarrelsome, that's not an excuse. Well, I'm just a little, you know, the Lord, the Lord, we always say that, don't we, Jeff? The Lord, you know, the Lord gave me this strong personality. We try to put it off on the Lord, don't we? Yeah. We try to excuse our, our lack of gentleness, blame the Lord. But then Galatians chapter 5, another letter Paul wrote, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And what are the fruits of the Spirit? Anybody name those off real quick? Anybody, any girl, any girl in here can name the fruits of the Spirit. Who, who said I can? Who? Michael. Who? Amanda. Any, 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 any student that's in the children's ministry, beaver kids or student, can you say the fruits of the Spirit? Anyone? Lacey can. All right, all right, right here, we got three right there in a row. Tell me, one of y'all tell me the fruits of the Spirit. Without seeing it. Without seeing it. Yeah, gentleness, right? Gentleness. Yeah, there's a lot. I know a lot of you. A lot of you are like, what's he going to do? You're like scared, weren't you, Alicia? Like, all right, if I say I can, what's he going to ask me to do? Is he going to call me up here? But see, if I'd have called you up here, it doesn't matter because you've been up here already, Elise. You're singing up here, right? So no fear next time. Yeah, there's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a personality trait. You get that? It's not a personality trait. We, 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 we often say, and I do too, well, you know, I'm, I just got this strong personality. But yeah, but what you're saying is you just get in the flesh a lot. What you need to be is in the Spirit and be gentle, right? Why should we be gentle? Well, we, we've said because the Lord's gentle. He commands us to be gentle, but... But it's tied here in the verse. It's interesting. We rejoice because our names are written in the book of life. Tied to verse 3. And then verse 5, let your gentleness, let your reasonableness be known for everyone. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. 
His return is imminent. You say, what's that mean, imminent? That means everything's been taken care of for the Lord to be, to, to be able to return. Nothing else needs to happen. The Lord could return. So that means, Jerry, that he could come back like in five minutes. No Super Bowl. No, they probably will have the Super Bowl if Jesus comes back. But I won't be watching it, okay? Uh, if I was saying no Super Bowl, like, no, they probably will. Maybe they will have it, right? You'd like to be able to say no Super Bowl, but that's probably not the case, right? If Jesus comes back, nah, they might still have that thing. Um, I mean, so Jesus being imminent, that means he could come back like, you know, any moment. Because we're living in the last days. You're like, well, we'll just talk about that last days thing. No, we, we're in the last days. What about all the things that happen? What, what's he saying is going to happen that hadn't happened? So his return is imminent. He could come back. Now, it might be another thousand years before he comes back. But he could come back any moment. And so that's why we are gentle. Not just because that Jesus is our exemplar, and he was, and, and he commands us to. So because we've been saved, we ought to yield to him and obey him just for that reason. But he says, let your gentleness, let your reasonableness be known to all, for the Lord is at hand. He's coming back. And he could come back any moment. When he comes back, you want, he, you want him to find you being gentle, right? And we see this connection in James chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. This connection with being reasonable and gentle and this imminent return of Christ. James 5, 8, 9. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That be patient. That's that picture of gentleness, right? Not the same word, but, it, but it's similar. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may be not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So this whole idea of Jesus coming back, so let's just live, let's live rightly. Let's follow him. Let's go hard after him because he's, he's going to come back. And we believe that as believers. Jesus is returning, and that's our hope. He'll return, and everything will be made right. So just these two verses, I'm going to stop right there. And um, these two verses, because um, we're going to take the Lord's Supper and we're going to transition into that. But let's do this. Morgan led us in the time of our confession, the time of examination. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul, and he's, he's rebuking the church and teaching the church in Corinth about taking the Lord's Supper. He says, don't you like, we, we transition to the Lord's Supper. Everybody starts shuffling, putting stuff up. I'm fixing to say a bunch of cool stuff. You're going to want to write down. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, he's, he's, he's teaching this church in Corinth about, about the Lord's Supper. And he says, yeah, we, what do we do before we take the Lord's Supper? We, we examine ourselves. We sit before and we examine ourselves. Where am I? Where am I? Am I doing the, the things that the Lord would have me do? What have I done or that, that displeased the Lord? Or what have I not done that displeased the Lord? Lord, show me. Test me and try me, right? And so we'll do the same thing here now in regard to our text this morning. And, and we, we hear these and we, we take them not so much as commands. We take them kind of like suggestions. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to all for the Lord is near. And we hear that and, oh, that's, just, that's really good. That's really good. But it's commandments. To not be joyful is to be sinful. To not be gentle is to be sinful is to be in rebellion against the Lord. But man, that's kind of hard. Yeah, the standard's pretty high, isn't it? He calls us to be like Christ, joyful amidst our 
suffering and difficulty. Cause to, he causes us or calls us to be not quarrelsome but gentle because the Lord's going to come back. Just could be any moment. Rejoice because we belong to him. And it may be that you're here and you're like, yeah, but I don't belong to him. That's a really big problem. Maybe you've never, maybe you've never underst understood your sinfulness and your rebellion against the Lord. And maybe never, the, never in your life have you felt the weight of this, this, this reality that if you don't know the Lord, you're separated from the Lord and you will be thrown into the lake of fire and he'll pour out his wrath on you for all eternity. But that what's, that's what's going to happen because God is just. He's not impartial. All those who rebel against him, he will judge. And that's a weighty, heavy thing. And if that's you this morning, you've never repented, I want to encourage you to repent and you turn from your sin and you tell the Lord that you're a sin, sinner and you want to repent. You want to turn from your sin and you, you don't want to live for you. You want to live for Christ. You want to obey him and you want to follow him. If that's you this morning, the good news is that Jesus, he came and took on flesh 2,000 years ago and he walked this earth and he obeyed for you. All the things that you can't seem to do and all the things that, that you haven't done, that you should, Jesus did. And even though he was perfect and he didn't sin at all, he was arrested, he was abused, he was put on a cross and he did that willingly in obedience to the Father. And he died and he was buried. And what happened on the cross, well, not only did he die physically, but he, he suffered for the sins of, of sinners. And he bore my sin. And he bore Rodney's sin. And he bore Christian's sin. And he bore Jenny's sin. And after three days, he rose from the grave, the Bible says, so we could be justified, so we could be made right with him. And the Bible says if you'll repent and you'll trust Christ's work on the cross as your own, you'll be made right with him. And that's the only way you're going to be made right with him. No other way. It's not any pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, getting her done, doing better, turning over a new leaf. That's not going to get it. Let me tell you this. Even if you right now if at this point in your life, if you said, you know what, I'm going to stop doing all this bad stuff and I'm not going to sin anymore. From this point on, I'm not going to sin anymore. You still, you would go to hell. Even if you live to be 90 years old and you never sinned again, you would go to hell. You know why? Because you're a sinner. Think about all the things you've done. How you've lived in rebellion your whole entire life since infancy. Still can't get there. Nothing you can do. It's hopeless without Christ. So won't you repent? Won't you turn from your sin? Won't you trust Christ? Work on the cross as your own work, as, as, as your own. He did that for me. Won't you cry out to the Lord today? I want to encourage you to do that. If you don't know how to do that, or you have more questions about that after we're finished today, I'd love to talk to you about that.
but just by way of application for us believers in our text today. Are you joyful? Are you a joyful person? Despite your circumstances, are you joyful? Or when your parents ask you to unload the dishwasher, is Yeah. No joy, right? Or or when you're driving to work, and I don't understand. I don't understand why people I, I know some people they're they're retired and they're in their eighties and, and every morning, you know, it's about seven twenty, they drive up to Burger King and get them a sausage and a biscuit. And I'm just like and I wanna I'm not gonna say anything. I just I just wanna tell them, please, would you just wait till after eight? Because when you're driving 26 and a half miles an hour, and what you're, you're, you got to get somewhere. You got to get the kids to school, right? You got to get to work. And you're like, even when that happens, you can have joy. You can. You're expected to, right? When your wife, you know, your wife can push your buttons. Jenny can't. She can't push mine. She tries. She can't. <laughs> what are you laughing for? Stop all that laughing. When your wife, right, pushes your buttons, you can have joy. And that doesn't mean it's easy, but you can, you can be joyful, right? That doesn't mean, and, and when I'm saying this, that doesn't mean you're smiling, but you can still have joy, right? There's a way to go through life and your life's falling apart and have joy. Paul's in prison, awaiting trial, possible execution, and he has joy. It can be done and it's expected of us. But are you joyful? And then the second question is, are you gentle? Ooh. That's a tough one for me because I'm a I'm a type A guy, right? I'm kind of I'm kind of rough. I'm kind of harsh. Yeah, are we gentle? Are we gentle? Are we putting others' interest above our own? Are we the opposite of quarrelsome? Right? Getting along with folks, peaceable. Let's just sit before the Lord just for a second. We're going to take the Lord's supper. Let's just sit before the Lord and confess our sin and um, what's going to happen if you if you do, if you need a if you want to take the Lord's supper. It's like, well, can I take the Lord's supper? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a question we need to answer. You can take the Lord's supper. We have open communion in our church if you're visiting with us. Now, what that means that does not mean that everybody can take the Lord's supper. That's not what that means because this is a family meal. And I don't mean beaver family, me. I mean church family, universal church. You don't have to be a part of our church family to take the Lord's Supper here. If you're a believer, you've been baptized and, and made a profession of faith, and you're walking with the Lord, you've been redeemed, you're born again, we don't just ask you, I'm telling you, Jesus wants you to take the Lord's Supper today. You think, well, you don't know about my life, I'm just not living rightly, and I just hadn't been in a good spot. The Lord doesn't say, get it all figured out, da-da-da-da-da, and then take the Lord's Supper. He says he's going to tell us in, in just a few moments to take it. So what we do, God in his infinite wisdom, he, he had us take the Lord's Supper. So we'd have to get still, get quiet, think about Christ, think about our own lives, examine ourselves, and we'll have to repent. And then we take the Lord's Supper. So if you're here and you're a baptized believer, we ask you to take the Lord's Supper. If you're not then don't take the Lord's Supper because you don't want to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's an unhealthy thing to do. 
if you have a child here, that ought to be okay. They can take it too. No, and if they're not a believer, you don't want them to do that. It's a teachable moment when your children leave. If some of them are here and they can't take the Lord's Supper, you can ask them, hey, why don't you take the Lord's Supper? Tell me why. Do you want to take the Lord's Supper? What does Jesus want us to do? Right. And then what we're going to do is these are, we're, we're kind of new at this. This is kind of new. I don't know if you're familiar with these, but it's got your, your bread and your juice together. And you don't have to be an engineer, but it helps to get into this thing. Right? Uh, but what we're going to do is uh, you're going to peel that top part off, and then you'll peel the second part. But what we'll do in just a second, we're going to examine ourselves, and then um, we're going to we're going to read some scripture. We're going to talk about the bread. We'll give thanks, and we'll all take it together. And then we'll do the same thing with the juice. Okay. Now, I want to take you back real quickly to Exodus chapter 12. And the Israelites, if you remember, they're in Egypt. There's been nine judgments the Lord's passed, um, passed out or, or poured out upon the Egyptians. And the Israelites are there. And the last judgment is the death of the firstborn. And this is what he tells his people. Exodus chapter 12, verse 7 and following. Then they shall take some of the blood. They're going to take a lamb and, and slaughter it. The Passover lamb, right? And take the blood and put it on the doorpost and, and the lentil and of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head, its legs, and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the good gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. He's pouring out his judgment, his wrath. I am the Lord, he says. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So we've heard the story before. You take a lamb, you, put, you, you slaughter it, you take the blood, you put it over your doorframe. God's coming, passing through, and whatever house doesn't have the blood over the doorpost, the firstborn would die. And, and the scriptures tell us, not a home, there wasn't a home in Egypt that there weren't mourning over a, a, a person lost. But the Israelites, they show, they show themselves to be followers of God. They trusted them, and they put the blood over their door. Right. What, what did that blood what does that blood do? What did the blood save them from? And sometimes we think about this. Think about the, the context. The, the Israelites, they're in Egypt. They're being oppressed by Pharaoh. Nine times already, Moses, God's spokesperson, has gone to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and Pharaoh has refused. And so sometimes we have this the idea that this last judgment is, is going to do it. It's going it's to allow the Israelites to leave Egypt. 
So what it's doing, it's saving them from the oppression of Pharaoh. But that's not true. Yes, they're going to get to leave and take the Egyptians' money with them. But what the blood does on the doorpost is it saves the Israelites from, not Pharaoh, but it saves the Israelites from God himself. Because God's going to execute judgment on that place. On every home that doesn't have the blood. Now let's fast forward. Mark. Mark chapter 14. <clears throat> Mark chapter 14. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So ever since Egypt... Every year, the Israelites, what do they do? Keep the feast. They celebrate the feast. They're celebrating the Passover. Celebrating what? The Israelites being passed over. They, didn't, they weren't judged like the Egyptians. Verse 22 through 25. And as they were eating, he took bread. As Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So here, centuries and centuries later, Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover, but this is going to be the last Passover for his disciples. From that point on, they'll regularly take the, not the Passover, but this Lord's Supper. And they won't take it remembering what Jesus, or what God did in Egypt. How he passed over the homes of those Israelite faithful. But from the time Jesus ascended into heaven, after he died on a cross, rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. His disciples would take this supper, remembering what Christ had done. And what did that blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb, what did his blood do for us? Saves us from what? Saves us from, we say we save us from our sins, and that's true. But another way of putting it, it saves us from God himself. Because God is so loving and, and wonderful. But he's so just and wrathful. And because of Christ's blood, Claire Beth, because of Christ's shed blood for us, we can say, I'm set free. I won't be judged. I deserve it. I deserve it. But on Judgment Day, I have assurance because of what Christ has done for me. What has Christ done on, on the cross? He bore our, that wrath for us. It's already been dealt with. Isn't that amazing? That's what the blood of Jesus does for us. So let's sit before the Lord. Just in another time of confession, just examine ourselves, especially in regard to rejoicing. We're to be joyful. That don't mean we're supposed to smile and be happy and go lucky. That's not what that means. But we're to be joyful. 
continually remembering the gospel and, and, and because of Christ. I belong to God and it's going to be okay. Are you joyful? Let's just sit before the Lord. Are we, are we gentle or are we quarrelsome? Are we quarrelsome at home? Are we quarrelsome with our sister and our brother and our mama and our daddy? Are we quarrelsome at work? We're cantankerous and ill, oftentimes in a bad mood, stirring up things. Or are we, or are we gentle? And the Lord commands us to be both joyful and gentle. Let's take the bread, if you would, from your cup. and We're going to, I'm going to read a couple verses and, and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to take this together, remembering this, this bread represents the body of Christ and we take it remembering what he's done for us. And as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus who lived in such a wonderful example for us. We don't have to attain righteousness because he was our righteousness. He lived righteously. And his body was broken. We remember him this morning. Thankful for him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat the bread together, remembering the, the body broken for us. Just get your cup ready if you can. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Let's thank the Lord for his precious blood. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done in Christ, not only living for us, but dying for us, going to the cross, having his precious blood spilled out so that we could be forgiven. Thank you for the atonement Christ provided for us, us sinners. We know without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The strength of the cup represents the blood of Jesus. Amen. Worship team, come on up. We're going to sing one more song. And this will be our benediction.